as engineers or even as hackers, like we, we don't know what other people are thinking and we don't know what other people want to use the technology for. And that's the most exciting part is giving people something and seeing what they do with it. Hello and welcome to the Hacker Next Door podcast, where we explore the origin stories, exploits, and everyday lives of real world hackers. I'm your host, Jeremy N. Smith, and this series is my chance to challenge stereotypes and examine the human side of this extraordinary activity and profession, who hackers really are, and how hacking really works. My guest today is hardware hacker extraordinaire Joe Grand, also known as Kingpin. As a teenager, he joined the legendary Boston-based hacker collective The Loft, which testified before Congress that they could take down the entire internet in half an hour. Grant co-hosted the Discovery Channel TV show, Prototype This, designed a series of mind-blowing electronic badges for the DEF CON hacking conference, and runs Grand Idea Studio, a Portland-based product design, development, and licensing firm. He's brilliant, funny, ultra-experienced, and incredibly creative. I felt like I was learning something new and important every second of our conversation, and I know you will too. Hey, Joe, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. You were, I think, 14 years old when you hooked up with the Loft Hacker Collective, which became famous slash infamous in the 90s for going public with hardware and software vulnerabilities. What was the blowback from other hackers on one side and corporate America and the feds on the other? Ooh, that's a great question. Yeah, so by the time I joined the Loft, I was 16, uh, and I had known a, a bunch of the you know Boston area hackers before then, so I think I probably met them when I was 13 or 14. Um, but then when the loft started, really for the first few years, we weren't finding vulnerabilities and systems and we weren't just going out there and kind of trying to fight, you know, big business. We were just uh, a group of, of seven people in an old art, uh, loft warehouse. <laughs> so it really wasn't until later on that, that we kind of focused more on like, oh, InfoSec is becoming bigger. It's important for us. Some of the guys at the time were working as IT people or security people within these large companies. And it was important for us to sort of find these problems and educate people about them so we and other people didn't have to rely on the companies to fix the problems. Because at the time, big companies like Microsoft and small companies as well weren't responsive to essentially a, you know, a hacker coming out and calling their baby ugly and saying, hey, we found a problem in your, in your software. A lot of times they're like, no, that's not really true. And they sort of blew it off. And we're like, well, actually, no, it's a real problem. Here's some exploit code we wrote to demonstrate it. And then they go, oh, I guess it's a problem. But it, you know, it wasn't like it is today where there's a security at whatever.com. And, and usually companies are fairly responsive to finding vulnerabilities where back in the day, it was mostly we were doing it to experiment and to have fun and also to protect, you know, customers of, of these guys' day jobs. But it really was something new to find vulnerabilities and prove the vulnerability, sort of write the proof of concept code and then figure out a way to fix it as well. And were hackers themselves, other hackers kind of annoyed that you were going public with this stuff because, you know, I've, I've heard in the day, you know, people were sort of called either glory hounds or just sort of ruining the fun for everyone else. You're telling the, the backdoor secrets that we're used to using. Yeah, there was definitely some, some controversy and it wasn't just from other hackers. It was also from people in these companies. So what I would call professional infosec or legitimate people instead of seven guys in a warehouse. Um, and yeah, there was some discussion, you know, some people were like, well, why, why do you want to share this information? Other people could then use it and exploit it. And our, our answer was like, well, we didn't, we didn't make up the problems. We just happened to discover them. 
And we need a way to educate people about those problems. Some people in the community didn't want us to release that information because they wanted to find it and keep it for themselves, which you see right. nowadays a lot with like the O-Day or Zero Day kind of market, which back in the day, there was nothing. You didn't get paid to find this stuff. You did it for fun or for whatever other purpose, but you weren't making money doing it. But people, people still wanted to keep that information private. So there was a lot of conversation about that, a lot of controversy. I remember some mailing lists. When we would post vulnerabilities, we were using our hacker names, our handles. And one of the reasons we did that is because they sounded cool. Uh, but the other right. reason is that we, sometimes we wanted to stay anonymous. Like we wanted our, our work to speak as the loft and as a group, not necessarily as this particular person who works at this company doing this thing. We weren't anonymous, but we were somewhat anonymous, you know, at the same time. So people were like, why are you, why are you hiding behind your name and, and things like that? But Ultimately, because we became so high profile in finding vulnerabilities, sharing the good side of the hacker message, which is something that, that we feel very strongly about, but also pissing people off, right? Pissing companies off, pissing other people off, that it made sense to actually hide behind our handles so we wouldn't get targeted as easily as we would if we did have our handles. Most famously, in 1998, you all are invited to testify before the U.S. Senate using your hacker handles. You know, it actually says Kingpin yes. on the plaque. In the in public record. <laughs> on the public yeah. record. And the headline takeaway was that you all said you could take down the entire internet in 30 minutes. But what do you remember about the experience itself? You know, as being a pretty young kid, like 22 years old, yeah. my math's yeah. right. Going there as Kingpin in public in such an exposed way with such bold and important information to share. Yeah, it was, it was a really great experience. And that, yeah, I was 22 years old. That was my first public speaking. The other guys in the group were, were all at least a few years older than me. And they were all my mentors and sort of leaders. So I would kind of mimic what they were doing and learn from, from them. So I didn't really have a, a major role in saying things at, at that event. But it was this amazing experience because we're, we're seven hackers using our fake names. And we were the first, first group to use pseudonyms for a, a, a testimony other than people in the witness protection program which is kind of cool because we, we weren't in the witness protection program. <laughs> not yet. At least. Uh, not yet. And I do remember like right when the, right when the event started, Senator, it was either Senator Glenn or Senator Lieberman was like, I can't wait. I think it was Senator Glenn. I can't wait to go home and tell my grandkids that I had a, had a meeting with space rogue today. And, <laughs> and it was just like such a, a meeting of minds, you know, it was like the, these politicians had never seen hackers and hackers, at least most of us had never seen politicians. And, you know, it was totally. like talking to our grandparents. And there was a lot of kind of lead up to, to this particular event. It is sort of unfortunate. Everybody remembers the hackers say they could take down the internet in 30 minutes. I have on my wall, there's a Trivial Pursuit Genus 5 version from back in the day where one of the questions actually is, what did a group of geeks call Loft? Tell the US Senate they could cripple in 30 minutes. And of course the answer is the internet. So that was like mentioned on the news and Conan O'Brien and Rush Limbaugh. Everybody picked up on that one soundbite which is what the media does. And it's unfortunate because that testimony was about an hour long. And they basically wanted us, when we got invited, was to talk about what was like the worst that could happen from a cyber perspective. They didn't even right, call it cyber right. at the time. But, you know, co connected computers and networks. What could be done with the state of security? Like, how bad is it? So we highlighted a bunch of bad things that could happen, including taking down the internet. But really just trying to educate them of like, he, there are so many problems and the internet was small enough. The, the user base was smaller. Computers weren't as widespread. So we did have an opportunity, I think at that point to maybe take better steps than we ultimately did. But it was just to show like we're seven people. 
again, in a warehouse doing this for fun after work. So if we could do all this stuff, what could an actual dedicated adversary do? Uh, another country, sure. uh, organized crime, whatever. And you look today and you hear about the Russians and the Chinese and Iranians and whatever other group, these military complex has this cyber aspect to it now where everybody has some group devoted to online or hacking activity at some point. So we sort of had mentioned that back in the day and now it's like 18, 19 years later and it's like, oh, maybe we we should have done a little bit more, (laughs) you know, earlier in the game because now we're really behind a, a giant rolling boulder and we're about to get crushed. And the whole professional information security industry is essentially born out of this within a few years. When the government doesn't take enough action, how do you distinguish the sort of skateboarding-like subculture of hacking that you entered with the $150 billion-plus InfoSec industry we have today? What's hacking versus InfoSec? That's a great question, too. Not everybody that's in InfoSec is a hacker. And not everybody that's a hacker is in InfoSec. You do have this overlap because of the history, right? Because of people looking for vulnerabilities and realizing, oh, I can actually provide this as a service or I can help a company by working on the inside to make things better. But there are a lot of people that, that are neither. You know, my background is coming from that punk rock world. I was always a mischievous person, skateboarding. I call myself a, a you know technological juvenile delinquent. Um, <laughs> s- spent a lot of time doing things that I shouldn't have been doing. And eventually got in trouble for it, which is how I found my way towards the loft and and they kind of took me in under their wing. So I've always been about questioning authority, questioning things, not taking things at face value, looking for yourself, digging deeper, taking things apart. And I've always felt kind of strange with the the whole money-making aspect. When we did the, the Senate testimony and after that, we started to see a lot of these boutique security consulting companies starting to form realizing, oh, there is some money to be made here. And we were part of that. The Loft ended up joining forces with some venture capitalists and starting at stake, which was one of the first consulting companies around InfoSec, where we were like, can we do what we do at The Loft? You know, research, find vulnerabilities, fix them, give talks about it, share information. But can we do it full-time? Like, that would be amazing to be a full-time hacker. At the time, it was sort of unheard of. But the VCs and, and the people that we partnered up with were like, sure, that sounds great. Let's go out there and say, yeah, damn straight, we hire hackers. That was like one of the things the CEO would say, we hire hackers. But it turns out that that slogan was a lot harder to explain to companies than they thought it would be because the mindset was hacker equals bad. So they sort of used that as a way to to, to try to get some Mm. business. But eventually we just became another consulting company. And what happened is because there was money involved and, and money needed to be made, the executives looked down on finding vulnerabilities in products of our clients. So Microsoft ended up being a big customer, but now if we found a problem with a Microsoft product, are we going to go publicize it publicly? No. Now we're going to have to go through a process of maintaining our relationship so we can still get paid and maybe we'll give it to Microsoft and they'll fix it first and then release it. Maybe it never gets released and it just goes to Microsoft so other people might not be able to fix the problem. So it really became a lot of issues to deal with. And I still have a problem today because the industry is so big now, I just feel like there's less of the love and the passion and just more of the desire to succeed and and make a lot of money. You talked about zero days, which is basically means, if I'm getting this right, something that has been publicly disclosed for zero days. In other words, it is still a secret that it's a vulnerability. And people used to swap those, share those, make those public. And now if you have something that's really clever, you you can get into a iPhone or something that people use all the time, Gmail, something like that, that might be worth literally millions of dollars and people aren't going to share it even at a conference for cred 
Often. Sure. There's, so there's a whole sub market just around zero days. And that's a huge thing where, you know, we would find a vulnerability in something back in the day and write about it and just release it publicly because nobody was paying. But now there really is a market of like, if you have something awesome, maybe that sells to law enforcement, maybe it gets sold to some military group somewhere around the world. You know, it's right. like everybody wants a piece. So there is a disconnect. Not everybody in InfoSec believes about sharing information and changing the world. And maybe that's still my naive view, but that to me is scary. InfoSec nowadays is like any other big business. It's like war. It's like the healthcare system where there's so much money to be made that I don't see it. I don't see solutions coming anytime soon, which is sort of good job security, but also really frustrating because back in 1998, I feel like we actually did have an early enough start of like, hey, this is what could happen, but it's just the government doesn't move that fast. I want to get into your hardware hacking because sure. it's so cool. Let's start with some of the prototype this stuff. What was the premise of that TV show? Prototype this was essentially four engineers building prototypes of crazy projects. The premise of the show is build crazy things and show the engineering process, like the real process, not just cheating and making it look like you did something. This is more than a decade ago, but you all prototyped everything from a mind-controlled car to a robotic dog sitter to a real-life superhero suit? Yes. <laughs> what was your favorite project? Oh, they were all my favorite. You know, every time we did something, I was like, this is crazy. And every everyone had challenges, just like real engineering projects. The first few we did, like the 10-foot giant boxing robots that would, that would move based on the movement of players outside the ring. These are boxing robots, robots that are themselves actually fighting each actually other. Actually fighting, yeah. So there's a movie called Real Steel that apparently was based on our idea. You know, it yes. came out a few years later. And we based our idea off of those Rock'em Sock'em plastic robots from back in the day. That was the first build that we did as a group. And to see it come, come to life and see these robots stand up and then start pummeling each other. And to see that final episode that, that we made was like, wow, this is really a thing. Like we can create projects, even though there's real no purpose other than sharing the process and having fun with it. We inspired a lot of people with the show and to, to see it like, wow, this really, you can find a group of people and build really neat stuff with. And it's amazing to see some of the stuff that still seems crazy, like perhaps the superhero suit and some stuff that seems totally normal, like a self-driving car to deliver pizza. Right. This was before the maker community really took off. So we started filming, it was 2006 and 2007, right before a lot of these really common electronics modules and things you could build from. So we were much more limited in, in the, the available technologies we could use and the information that was out there which made it even more of a challenge, I think. We had a, our life-saving drone, which was a air, an autonomous airplane that would launch up and, and if somebody was in distress, it would receive a GPS signal and then go and fly over and drop a payload. That was like a brand new thing. And now you see, you know, Pizza Hut trying to deliver pizzas with a quadcopter yeah. and other things. Like there wasn't even a quadcopter platform we could use. We had to use an actual two-wing, you know, like <laughs> airplane that if it hovers in one spot, it's going to fall into the water. So there were some challenges. The... The self-driving car episode was actually really interesting, and, and, I, and I think there's a book being written about it, and there's been articles about it as well. That show ended up kind of sparking the autonomous vehicle industry much more than it would have with, without that show. One of the guys we had, Anthony Lewandowski, who brought his self-driving car prototype that we used for part of the episode, he was working at Google on some other projects, but he ended up heading the self-driving car division at Google based on that episode because the, awesome. the head guys of Google had seen the episode and they're like, that's cool. You got to do that full time. And that turned into what we see today with autonomous vehicles. And, you know, he's had his finger in all sorts of stuff. And for us, it was really like, let's think of like the, the most ridiculous thing we could do. Let's have a robot deliver pizza and let's find a car that can drive itself. That's ridiculous. Nobody ever is going to do that. And, you know, and look at it today. It's pretty wild. 
Around the same time, you started developing the first electronic badges for the DEF CON hacking conference. What's the role of badges at hacker conferences for people who haven't been? If you think about a conference badge, you normally go to a conference, you get a piece of paper, or maybe it's a, a, an RFID card that has some information on it. So it's really just an identification card or access card into the conference. But nowadays, a lot of conferences are creating electronic badges. And the badges have become not just this static piece of information, but it's an actual full-fledged electronic product that has some artwork, that has maybe a game or a puzzle introduced to it. And that has just taken off in the past 10 years or so. And there's even a whole community called Badge Life based around just making unofficial badges and crazy little projects and blinking light circuit boards and things to bring, bring to events. The hardware world has kind of become way more accessible and you don't have to be an engineer to build things. You can, you can learn information online. You can get circuit boards made super cheap. You can experiment. And it really has opened up this brand new world. What was your first electronic badge for DEF CON in its native state when people got it? And then what were some of the crazy things people did with it? Sure. The first badge we did was 13 years ago. And the goal then really was just to give attendees a piece of hardware. Because at that point, electronics just hadn't made inroads into the hacker community like we thought it should. So this badge was shaped in a, of a circle with the DEF CON logo in it, which is like a, a happy face with skull bones. And I had two lights in place of the eyes. And the lights would blink in different patterns depending on, as you press the button on the back, it will change some lights. It was hackable in the sense of, I left the, the programming connector on there to make it easy if somebody had the right tools, they could connect the programming hardware to their computer, connect the badge, and then change the software to have it do other things. So it really was just a very basic implementation. The goal was to get them done under $5, and we made five or 6,000 of them for this event. So very simple because we were just trying something new. We didn't know what to expect. Along with the badge is we created this badge hacking contest of saying, hey, now you have this piece of hardware, you can learn from it or you can modify yes. it and do something else. Like, what can you do with it? And I really didn't know. Like, I had no idea what people would do, especially because it was such a simple device. The coolest thing in, in the winner of this first contest was a guy named Shaggy, who was a DJ. And he saw these blinking lights. There were some that were fixed patterns like on off or left eye, right eye, go back and forth. But then I had a pseudo random mode that would blink in different random patterns. And being a musician, he saw that and was like, hey, that sort of reminds me of music because it was kind of pulsing along in a very repeatable kind of rhythm or pattern. So he took the output of the LEDs, of the lights, soldered wires on onto them, brought it into his synthesizer, and ended up creating electronic music using the eye LEDs as triggers for his music. Yes, so cool. Which is like a perfect mix. Other people did, right, like a flamethrower, yeah. uh, Morse code. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. That's what I realized that year, which I still continue to this day, is the badge itself should be really just an entry point for other people to use. And to see that year that it turned into the synthesizer and the flamethrower, like you said, as engineers or even as hackers, like we, we don't know what other people are thinking. We don't know what other people want to use the technology for. And that's the most exciting part is giving people something and seeing what they do with it, breaking the mold of whatever it is. Like I might've expected them to use it a certain way and they go do something else. And that's the beauty of hacking. There is no right, one right way. You can do whatever you want. No one's going to tell you otherwise. And you can have multiple solutions to things. And, and that's what makes it great. You also teach hardware hacking trainings, including how to reverse engineer and defeat the security of common electronic devices. What is reverse engineering? Reverse engineering to me really is the art of undesigning something or figuring out how something works where, you know, in a typical world, engineering would be to create something and you engineer something and build a product. Reverse engineering is exactly the opposite. How does the system work? How is it built? And then for our purposes, from a ha hacking perspective is like, all right, let's look at a product, see how it's built. 
And then let's look for ways that we can actually manipulate it. Because a lot of times with products that are being built and manufactured, you need to have test points, signals that are easily connected to by a manufacturer or by a test engineer to test the product or to load code into the product. We can look for those things and, and exploit those. You know, we, we all have at this point dozens of devices, seen and unseen, that we depend on for a daily basis. And, you know, you've been a big supporter of the right to repair movement. What is the right to repair and why does it matter to ordinary folks as well as hackers? Sure. So it's funny that there even has to have a name for it these days, but right to repair and, and kind of the movement around it is just trying to get companies to release enough information to let owners of their products fix their products. If you're old enough to remember Apple Computer back in the 80s, they wanted people to hack with their Apple and with their Apple II and build circuitry and plug into it. When you bought an Apple computer, you got a manual with, your, with the schematics of the system, the electronic roadmap of how the system worked. You could find source code of how the system worked. Everything was open to a point that you could repair it, you could add to it and, and make it do what you wanted to do as the legitimate owner. iPhone, not so much. Yeah, jump to Apple products these days, iPhone, not so much, computers, not so much. You can't even change a battery on your own device and electronic devices rely on batteries. The chemistry is going to go bad. You're going to need to change your battery. But a lot of these large major consumer electronics manufacturers these days build in what's called planned obsolescence. They design products basically planning for a, a fixed lifetime. So maybe three to five years until their next version of product comes out. And then they stop supporting it. And it, it goes in the junk bin, goes in the trash because people can't fix their stuff. So all we're trying to do is, is bring it back to how it was back in the day with, with computers or back in the day with any sort of device. Think about a home appliance, right? You can fix your own washing machine. You fix your own dryer. You see the wiring diagrams. Automotive, automotive industry went through the same thing. People want to be able to fix their cars and not have to bring it to a licensed repair shop that charges more money just because they're approved by the vendor and has a certain manual that nobody else can get. This really circles back to the same issues you were dealing with in the 90s, it seems to me. I mean, now that you're in your 40s, what would you tell your 14-year-old self or, for that matter, any teenage hacker today? Oh, well, it's funny because my kids aren't quite that age, but I'm, I'm already trying to instill into them, don't just take products and use them and trust them. Think about how it works. Think about what you could do with it. Don't be afraid to take things apart. Which is funny, as much as you know, as much as I say that when they come in and actually take something apart, I'm working on it. It gets really frustrating. <laughs> and then my wife comes in and says, "Hey, you were a hacker. You wanted to take stuff apart, so this don't is karma. forget that. Yeah. It's totally karma." But it's I really just want kids and hackers in general to not just allow these big companies to do what they do just because they're big companies. Whether it's physical hardware, whether it's Facebook, whether you're giving up all of your personal information to get. 5% off of your grocery shopping or you're sharing information online so you can stay in touch with your friends. There's this, there's a medium ground. And I feel like we're all just so caught up in using services of these big companies, using products from these big companies and not really, not really pushing back and saying, Hey, we're the consumer, we're, we're your customer. You should maybe design something that we want instead of forcing what you want onto us. Brilliant. Where can people find you online if they're interested? So you can go to my website, randideastudio.com. I'll post all my projects as I build them, all the documentation, everything goes up on there. I am on Twitter at Joe Grand, J-O-E-G-R-A-N-D. Uh, on my website, there is a contact link so you can send me email that way. Yeah, that's pretty much it. I kind of try to minimize my, you know, my, my digital footprint and control it to just the stuff that I want out there, which is all project related, uh, you know, information. Awesome. Thank you so much, Joe. 
Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you again to Joe Grand. Thank you to Furniture for our theme music. And thank you for listening. Please rate, review, and share this podcast with friends. And please join me again when I speak with entrepreneur and executive Casey Ellis about employing hundreds of thousands of hackers, the big business of bug bounty programs, and how to save teenage hackers from a life of crime. That's next time on The Hacker Next Door.